for me, explaining diet culture is basically like diet culture is the air you breathe. You were born into a world where thinner bodies are idealized, where weight loss is idealized, where weight loss is the ultimate metric of success for most people. And health is actually pushed aside. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Welcome to the podcast this week. I have quite a treat for you this time. This week, we're talking about our relationship with food and food freedom, which at its core is about releasing yourself from obsessing over food. I've never felt so strongly that every woman in my life needs to hear something. As I listened to Dr. Jillian Murphy talk in this episode, I thought about my own story and related very deeply on a personal level. But I also thought about so many women that I love in my life and how important it is for them to hear this. While I may not know everyone listening on a personal level, if you are a woman and you grew up in the same society that I did, then you need to hear this message. I've alluded to my journey with disordered eating a few times in the past. It's an emotional topic for me because for a long time, I lived with a lot of shame surrounding food and my body to the point that I avoided any real conversations about food at all costs. To be able to talk about it now and want to share my truth is a testament to how far I've come and how much healing I've done. But it would be misguided to say that I don't still struggle with some of these concepts surrounding food. In this episode, Dr. Jillian Murphy is kind enough to share her story with us, and holy can I relate. As she did, I restricted my eating for a long time, And I still remember the attention it brought me. I remember how validating it felt to be celebrated for losing weight, and I became addicted to that feeling. When I left to go to college, I couldn't maintain the restriction, and my body rebelled. Just as Dr. Murphy will explain, my biology won out, and I started eating way more than I was used to. I found myself binging. Of course, I didn't see it as my biology winning out. Instead, I took on the guilt of what was happening as me not having enough willpower or being weak. I was ashamed. After school, as I learned more about nutrition, my restriction took on the disguise of orthorexia, which Dr. Jillian also explains for us in this episode. For a long time, my relationship with exercise was very closely tied to what I ate, which I now realize was an unhealthy relationship with movement. It's been a long road to repair my relationship with food and exercise. Finding food freedom is not an easy task. Like I said, I'm not perfect. But now, more than ever, I understand that I deserve not to obsess about food, that my worth has nothing to do with what my body looks like, and my health is not tied to my weight. I will keep doing the work of releasing myself from this mentality, and I hope that wherever you are in your journey, this episode will help you move a little closer to that as well. If you have ever had a disordered relationship with food, wondered if you have an unhealthy relationship with food, or know someone that you think may be struggling with food, then you need to hear this. 
I have to add a small disclaimer before we get started that this is the very first episode that I've done over video chat. We don't live in the same city, so I'm not sure about the audio quality, if it's going to be as great, but I think that the content of this episode is more than worth it. This is one that I really hope everyone takes the time to be present with. Maybe you need to jot some things down. Really take this stuff to heart because like I said, I think these concepts are so important. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jillian Murphy. I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your story and your motivation behind the mission to help people find food freedom. Sure. So I'm a naturopath. I have been a naturopath since 2006. And so my whole career has been spent helping people with health and with health in that holistic sense of using food and movement and lifestyle in order to improve health. But the motivation to actually get into this specific work started quite a while before. Mm-hmm. In my early 20s, I I had been an athlete growing up. I was a soccer player. So I was always into sort of movement and eating well and had a great relationship overall with my body and food. It wasn't that I wasn't aware of diet culture or the expectations on the female body, but it wasn't affecting me in my younger years. But when I, when I hit university, um, there were a, a few things that came into play. I stopped playing soccer. I joined the running team for a couple of different reasons. I became interested in naturopathic medicine and I started diving like more deeply into nutrition and in Mm -hmm. a way that others weren't doing at all at that time. Like this was like way before the clean eating movement. This was like 1999, you know, nobody knew what a trans fat was. (laughs) Nobody cared about sugar. I often joke, right? Like it it just, people didn't care about this stuff. It wasn't a big deal. It was Mm -hmm. very, very fringe to like know what brown rice was. I was really into it though. And so this confluence of events, which was me just becoming a little bit more interested in my food and exercising in a slightly different way led to some weight loss. It was accidental. It wasn't intentional, but I got a lot of feedback about it. And it was really positive at first, but it was pretty shocking because I thought that I was sort of fine. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting how when your body changes, people think it's their right to comment on it. Like everybody wants to say something. It wasn't like, oh, you look different, you know, or (laughs) are you doing something different? Like your body's changing. It was like, oh my God, I am so proud of you. Like people who aren't even my friends stopping me in bars. I went to a, a fairly small university stopping me on campus. Like so proud of you. You just you look so different. And I mean, if I could, I don't like to get into numbers because I feel like it's triggering for some people, but like I was a really average, fairly thin, trim, athletic for sure. Mm -hmm. I was always like solid girl who lost a little bit of weight. It was really not that big of a deal, but it was like, all of a sudden I went, I was like, you know, it was just like, what did I look like before? I mean, Mm. I don't know. And really, really different attention from boys, I'll call them boys at that time. It was just shocking. It was shocking for me. And so it started a very interesting spiral where I became increasingly worried about going backwards. I think it's just also a pretty challenging time in in a lot of young people's lives, that 20, 21 sort of age where you're you know, figuring out who you're going to be and what you're going to do. And so that, I think the anxiety of that paired with this fear of failing at my body and food and 
it turned into a really unhealthy obsession. And so I lost too much weight very quickly. The comments um, became really negative and really harsh about my body. So I went from kind of like being congratulated to sort of being like, you're disgusting. This is Mm. disgusting, which was hard as well. You know, I was suffering from a condition that we now know as orthorexia, but at the time there was no name for it. Can you just tell us what um, orthorexia is? Sure. So it's for just anyone an obses- that doesn't know. Yeah, it's an obsession with healthy eating. Mm-hmm. And it's an obsession that is no longer just about like, oh, I care about my health or my body. It's a very fear and anxiety-based obsession with eating the right foods. And that becomes trickier and trickier. It gets more and more restrictive to the point where there's very little left to eat. And it definitely bleeds with anorexia. And I know for some, mm-hmm. they, can, they can exist at the same time. And for me, it did. It got increasingly restrictive, which meant that I was eating less and less. I was always eating, but especially for the amount of running that I was doing, because that became the other outlet for the fear and the anxiety that I had was to run. Oh, so um, you started using that as sort of like a punishment yeah. for what you're eating? Yeah, or a way to just manage it and a way to manage the feelings that I was mm. having. I think even more, I would say at that point. Then, you know, mm. I knew pretty quickly that I didn't want to live like that very long. I had trouble getting help because I didn't tick the boxes for like a proper eating disorder. Mm. And a lot of people that I would go to see would be like, oh, you're just being healthy, you know? <laughs> and I was like, this isn't healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, And I would say at that point, like as I worked to increase my flexibility with food, which is very challenging because I had very little help or direction. So I started to suffer from the reactions to restriction, which I can talk about at some point. We can talk about that connection. It was never explained to me. I think very few people actually understand the really normal reactions that humans have to restriction. Mm -hmm. And so as I tried to release my restrictive tendencies, which were problematic. Um, I started to react. I started to behave in a way that felt really bad and really awful. And I thought that I was failing. And so I think at that point I started using exercise to like make up for Mm. what I was eating, you know, these things like shift, you know, and then it's very interesting because I was trying to move out of this obsession with healthy eating as I went into a naturopathic degree. That's challenging. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) And it was tough because I had this interesting perspective on healthy eating that others didn't have or hadn't yet found because many people I think were obsessed with healthy eating who are in that program, who are in many programs that, mm-hmm. that revolve around food and bodies and health, right? Mm-hmm. For many of the women, it, they tend to be female dominated areas of education and career to have some sort of history or be in some sort of place where food could be potentially a bit of an obsession or a bit of a struggle. So mm-hmm. I would say that it existed in the program, but I had just this perspective of like, okay, I don't have all the vocabulary for this right now, but I feel like there are some aspects of the way that we're talking about food and approaching food that's maybe not that healthy based Mm -hmm. on what I'm pulling myself out of. And then as I moved into my career, it just took a few different events in my career to really push me to go from sort of like a place where I didn't feel like I was disordered with food anymore into a really solid, grounded place with food and my body and health where I really separated. I really started to separate weight and health and my understanding of how food and exercise played in with that. So I had got myself, I sort of say like 85% of the way there. And then there was just a few different events with patients repeatedly coming to me looking for weight loss and it being kind of the bane of my existence and not knowing how to manage it. And 
doing different eating programs, which I'm almost a little bit embarrassed about now, but early in my mm-hmm. career doing different like weight loss and food programs with people and seeing the struggle and seeing mm-hmm. them not getting the results that they wanted and nothing lasting. And then also me having babies. And after my second child, I put on weight and it didn't come off and none of the old tactics seemed to work anymore. And so at that point, I was really confronted once again with this idea of health and weight and, and how far food and exercise can go. And when it stops being healthy and it starts being problematic, the things that we're doing to manage our weight. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like this evolution. As I felt like I finally worked my way through it, I was like, okay, I need to do this for other people and I need to help them do it in less than like 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> Ideally. Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting how you're talking about how you got a lot of the way there, but then you learned a lot from coaching others and sort of working with others. I've had a similar experience as a trainer. When you take someone else through a program and suddenly you see something from an outside perspective, you actually learn a lot for yourself as well. It's almost like that voice in your head where you'll talk to yourself a certain way, but you would never talk to your friend that way. Right. right? So when you have that outside perspective and now you're coaching other people through these things, I, I can really relate to that feeling of like things becoming much more clear in some of those pieces from working with others. Well, I always say that like one of the biggest myths of the diet culture is that we're all just like failing as individuals at eating and exercising, right? Mm. (laughs) And because we're so engrossed in the diet myth, it's very difficult to take a step back and go, oh my God, everyone around me is also struggling with this. Maybe it's not our individual problem. Like maybe it's a problem with the system. Mm. When you take a little bit of a step back, it's still hard, but you do start to go like, okay, if I put... 20 or 30 people through this eating program over and over and over again, and they're not getting results. Like, is, is it their fault or is it maybe the program, you know, mm-hmm. like, and when I say results, I don't mean that people weren't necessarily making some healthy changes and like feeling better. I mean, like, were they losing weight and keeping it off long-term? No, right. no, they were struggling because of that. Because mm-hmm. even when they were making really great strides with their health, what became interesting to me was the fact that they would throw all of that out the window if weight loss wasn't coming with it, that weight loss was the ultimate metric of success Mm -hmm. and it wasn't happening. And I knew it wasn't happening for other people because I'm in these groups and these group emails or whatever with naturopaths and different people. The only people that I knew of that were getting quote unquote results were getting short-term results. And as far as I could tell, they weren't following up in the long term. or it would be like, oh yeah, but that person stopped with the shakes and the blah, 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 and the blah. So then they gained the weight back. And again, putting it back on the individual when meanwhile, it's like, you know, I just started asking questions like, should people have to be on two shakes a day and not eating food? Is that actually a health promoting lifestyle? Right. (laughs) If weight is no longer the ultimate metric of success, then we start to see these things with a whole new perspective. And we start to go like, oh, there might be a reason why people can't Mm. stick with that. And how could I continue to help them feel good and promote health without feeling like they need to be on a program that doesn't actually feel good to them. Mm. Right. Yeah, for sure. Can you talk a little bit about diet culture and what it is and the language that we're all using that's sort of contributing to it? That's an Everest of a question. Yeah, big question. Okay. Yeah, it's a good (laughs) question. So I'll say that I currently work from a health at every size, non-diet or anti-diet perspective 
what that basically means is whoever is in front of me, I am specifically working with people who are struggling with food and weight. But even when I was in the end of my general naturopathic practice, the person that was in front of me, I was always working on improving their health without using weight as a metric of success and without using restrictive food practices or intentional weight loss practices as a way to achieve health. And I'm putting that in quotation marks because again, I don't actually believe that that's a health promoting strategy. I think that we need to figure out where people are feeling good and then work at helping them feel good, not helping them lose weight. And within this paradigm, weight becomes an outcome. For some people, when they shift the way that they live in a way that feels good and sustainable and pleasurable and makes them feel vital and radiant and and energetic, sometimes they lose weight. It's a potential outcome, but it's also highly probable that they'll stay the same weight. And for those who have been restricting for most of their lives because they felt like they had to and they want to be free of that, they sometimes gain weight. And that's just a reality. For me, explaining diet culture is basically like diet culture is the air you breathe. You were born into a world where thinner bodies are idealized, where weight loss is idealized, where weight loss is the ultimate metric of success for most people. And health is actually pushed aside in the pursuit of weight loss and maintaining a body that looks healthy or has been defined as healthy for all the wrong reasons. It's just kind of understanding that diet culture is sort of everything that we exist in. And to approach health and bodies differently, we have to actually work pretty hard at it. We have to like be intentional and be critical and be constantly thinking and asking questions about the information that we're taking in when it comes to food and movement and our bodies. Because essentially, everyone has been immersed in this thin is best use food and use exercise to manipulate your body at all costs culture for about 120 years, a little bit longer in Europe. Can you tell us a little bit about the people that you're typically working with? Who is your typical client? So I have two different major populations that I work with. I work with mostly women. I always hate saying that because I work with men too. I look, I work with many male athletes. So I don't want to like say I only work with one gender, but if I had to like categorize the biggest group of people I work with. It's women who are struggling with negative food patterns. So it might be like binge eating or being overly restrictive in their eating, or it could just be a struggle that they're having in their mind. Like I'm just so tired of being preoccupied with food all day, every day, and like forcing myself to exercise when I hate it. And I just want to like enjoy the body that I'm in and live a healthy, good life. I mean, I would say that that's one thing that does differentiate the people that I work with. Because in the health at every size world, we really are valuing and respecting the individual values and lifestyle of the people that are in front of us. My firm belief is that humans do love to move. And that's something that to me is really important for managing stress and the the chronically stressful world that we live in is putting some nutrient-dense foods into our body and moving our bodies, I know that there's people that don't totally value that and just want to like feel respected as a human being because they exist. And those people deserve to be respected and cared for and have access to jobs and success and relationships because they exist. We don't have to earn that, right? Like that's a, that's a basic human right. But most of the people that come to see me have the additional goal of like, I do want to pursue health and feel healthy. Like that is a value that they carry. And so 
there's a very real question about first and foremost, like how do I let go of diet mentality and start to accept my body? And then when I'm ready, how do I start pursuing health again without falling back into those old traps that I used to be in? So that's sort of one of the big populations that I work with. And then the other, one of my favorite things to do is to work with kids. In reality, I don't actually work with the children. I work with the adults. So the caregivers of children who are struggling with food and body. So whether they are children who have become incredibly rigid or fussy or resistant to eating or children who are really preoccupied with food. So whether the parent would identify them as like sugar addicted or carb addicted or not having an off button. And then also the body image things that can happen for children really early on. And again, I'm predominantly working with adults. I don't really work with the children because, um, and this is again, a whole other podcast to be honest with you, but children tend to be hyper exposed to nutritional information early on, which tends Mm. to be one of the problems. You know, the work that I do with children is really about helping adults take responsibility back for feeding and letting children have this like freedom to figure out how much to eat and the balance of foods that they eat and how to accept foods and behave reasonably at the dinner table (laughs) Um, and do the things that kids need to learn how to do while not having to carry the burden of all of the nutritional information of like a PhD Mm. in nutrition, you know, at four or five years old. Again, it's part of this like growing wellness culture. There's a lot of really interesting things about it, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure on parents. Yeah, yeah. A lot of pressure on parents and a lot of pressure on children mm. to be eating in a way that is not developmentally appropriate or that they're not ready for. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we start to see weird behaviors with children around food. One of the um, the overriding belief systems in our wellness culture is that children just can't be trusted and mm-hmm. their nutrition needs to be micromanaged. When in reality, from the age of six weeks, children will very finely regulate the amount of food that they take in as is correct for their body. We just need to understand that they, they deserve and require their entire childhood to learn to eat the way that adults eat, Hmm. right? They're not supposed to be eating exactly like you eat or like an adult eats at four or five or nine or even 13, right? Mm -hmm. This is a growing process in the same way that they need to learn how to manage emotions and manage um, intellectual concepts. It's like, they also need time to learn how to, to eat, right? Mm. And that that should be ideally a really enjoyable and fun process. Like kids like food, they want to eat and they will generally want to eat well if we follow certain parameters. So that's the other really amazing bit of work that I get to do. I might have to have you back on to talk about all of that because I have a thousand questions about that in my head, but I know yeah. we have so much other stuff to talk about. Yeah, but. it's so good and it's big we tend to be operating from a place of like a deficit when it comes to children and nutrition, where we just believe that they're constantly like in a deficit, you mm-hmm. know? And so we have to really shift the way that we think about food and kids. If we want them to grow up to have the best chance at landing at the weight that's appropriate for their mm-hmm. genetic blueprint, a lot of these interventions that we think are great and ideal haven't been research validated or tested. And what we do know about them is they tend to push kids away from their ability to self-regulate. There's a lot more damage that can be done there than good. Even when we think, oh, but I'm just, I'm doing this because I'm encouraging them to be healthy. So that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing. A whole other conversation for sure. Yeah. Could you sort of help us understand what an unhealthy 
Well, I know that there are lots of different ways that this can sort of come out, but what an unhealthy or disordered relationship with food is. And maybe that's easier to describe based on a healthy relationship with food, but what is the, the goal for the clients that you work with in finding this healthy relationship with food? Ultimately, a healthy relationship with food for me is a relationship where the individual is like deeply attuned to their inner signals of like hunger and full, and they're able to mostly respect that, right? Like we're not perfect. We don't go to the bathroom every single time we have to go. Sometimes we hold it, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) eventually we go, you know, and we respect that we have to go. And so in the same way, you know, hunger is a biological drive. And so we have the awareness of it and we are attempting to attend to it most of the time that we eat foods that generally feel good in our body. So we're always considering our physical body, but we're also really aware of the mental and emotional and social and cultural aspects of eating. And we respect that and it's valid. And we understand that all eaters, even normal eaters eat emotionally sometimes and that food fills that role as well. Healthy eating for me is flexible. It's again, driven by our internal requirements as opposed to external food plans or or experts telling us what we should be eating. It can take in nutritional information, like the individual can take in nutritional information, but is able to like assess it based on how it feels in their own body. And they aren't willing to override their bodies over and over and over again because of someone else's advice. So essentially healthy eating to me is just being attuned and flexible and feeding yourself reliably and regularly and being able to take in nutritional information and being aware of what's considered healthy, but then being able to pair that or match that with how you like to eat and what's, Mm -hmm. what feels good to you and what's culturally and socially of value to you. Mm -hmm. So there's this, there's an education to it, like that you're educated and you know about nutrition, but you're not taking that as the end all be all. You're considering yourself and how you're feeling in your body and your needs and probably your needs at the time because it changes all the time. Yeah. And I would say that there's also this aspect of having, like, I'm not sure what the word is. It's like commandment over your eating. Like when it comes to Mm. unhealthy relationships with food, what becomes most challenging for individuals is when they feel out of control, when they feel compulsive, when they feel obsessed, when they're caught in this never ending hamster wheel spiral cycle of like what they're going to eat next, what they feel bad about eating, you know, feeling bad about what they just ate, then planning for the next thing and trying to control and then maybe being successful at it or maybe not being successful at it. And the feelings that revolve around that and the reactions to trying to control everything all the time and not being aware of hunger and full and losing complete track of that so that They are ignoring hunger and uncomfortable in that situation, but then also ignoring full and uncomfortable in that situation. And so there's a pretty big spectrum there where there's normal to like intensely disordered in terms of like clinically disordered, where it could potentially be life-threatening and is life-threatening, but there's lots of like steps along the way that sometimes people don't understand they don't have to live with right? Like just because you haven't been diagnosed with a life-threatening clinical eating disorder doesn't mean you don't have an issue. (laughs) And it doesn't mean that you're not wasting potentially like hours of your life 
obsessing about something that should be coming fairly naturally to you. Mm-hmm. That's like a biological human ability to regulate, right? And so, I mean, most people that come to me are really like, okay, this is what's going on and I'm really done with this. But it's interesting how as we work through the process, there will be certain behaviors or certain thought processes that they think are just absolutely normal because they have been normalized. And Mm -hmm. so part of my work is helping them see how certain behaviors, certain thought processes actually keep them trapped in that cycle and recognizing, you know what, you don't have to live like this. And there is a choice to opt out. Like you don't need to be obsessed with this. You can like choose, I'm good and I can make this decision for myself. Because it's so normalized and we're just so used to thinking about food in that way that we don't realize that, yeah, you can release yourself of those thoughts. So interesting. Can you sort of outline the, the steps that you go through with one of your clients to help them um, in sort of repairing their relationship with food? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because it really is like a teardown yeah. <laughs> process before we start building anything. Yeah. And so we really do set aside weight. And we set aside health, I'm using quotes here, health and um, wellness at the beginning of the process because Mm. we have to, because those concepts have been so muddled that it's really difficult for people to be able to make choice. Like again, having some ability to make decisions for yourself really involves tearing down all of the belief systems that you have. So we set those concepts aside at the beginning and I do a whole education or re-education in some of the things we're talking about today. So like, what is a diet? What do I mean when I say diets don't work? Like really getting into the research on that and what it looks like and how that plays out in the population and also within the individual that I'm working with. And so we do like a really, we do a lot of work there. Do you have a stat on that, by the way, of like a stat that explains that like diets in the long run don't actually work? 90 plus percent. Wow. 90 to 95% of diets fail in the long term. Long term is defined as three years, but as, as early as one year, we start mm-hmm. to see the failure. And, and there was a, a recent study that came out, I can't remember the year on it, uh, but looking at weight loss and those who had succeeded at weight loss in a diabetes trial. So they were sort of pushing people to lose weight for their health. The failure rates were a little bit lower than that 90 to 95% rate. But when they looked at those who were succeeding, quote unquote, at weight loss long-term, what they found was that the majority of those people were actually weight cycling, meaning they're like restricting, losing weight. The moment they stop restricting, they start to gain weight again, because that's what our bodies like to do. Mm -hmm. And then they would start restricting again. And so that's called weight cycling. And we're actually beginning to understand how stressful that is on the body. And when we understand that like stress and inflammation are the leading cause of a lot of the health issues that we have, And we're beginning to understand that weight cycling is a huge stressor on the body. We begin to see how even Mm. those who may look like they're succeeding at weight loss long-term could potentially be failing in a lot of ways when it comes to health, right? Yeah. Um, So there's lots of interesting stuff in there. Like I just published a newsletter last week about the things we know about long-term weight loss, which are not good. But then all of the questions, like all of the things that we don't know about long-term weight loss, Mm. because it's been you know, resolutely thought of as ultimately a good thing for so long, there's just lots of things that people, you know, people are just focused on making people lose weight, but they haven't really stopped to be like, okay, so then when they lose weight, are they actually staying there? Are they actually healthier? Have they actually, if they gain 20 pounds and now I've 
force them to take it off? Are they just as healthy as they were 20 pounds ago? Like there's just all of these, you know, are the methods that I'm using actually safe and effective and ethical? Like there's just all of these things that get ignored in the pursuit of just this ultimate metric. Weight loss. Right. Right. And people aren't really considering or researching, but yeah, the statistics are not good. And that's because to our body, weight loss feels like starvation. Mm. Our body, we have what's called a set point weight range. And it's really difficult to know what someone's set point is. It basically involves normalizing their relationship with food. <laughs> is that is that genetic? Uh, yeah. Your set point or is it based on like past habits and like kind of where your body has been used to being? Do you know it's what I predominant, mean? It's predominantly genetic. So okay. when you look at like twin studies where they're looking at identical twins, even if they're separated and like adopted into other families, they end up being similar to each other when they put when yeah. they've done identical twin studies and they put um so there was like an interesting study where they um, had identical twins and they put one one on like same diet plan, but had one exercising, like running something like, I mean, it was an enormous amount extra per week, like 30 miles more per week than the other twin and like kind of keeping the diet the same. And then at the end of the study, it was months, there was like a five pound difference between, wow. between these twins. Meanwhile, when they did the same study with people of all different genetic backgrounds, the results are all over the place. Right. Oh, so wow. People, because we, the, one of the belief systems is, is that our thermodynamics is just like a computer or a calculator, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. exercise this much, lose this much weight, but it's actually- Calories in, calories out. Right. It's so much more complicated than that. And it's right. heavily influenced by our genetics, like how we store weight, how we burn fuel. These things mm-hmm. are just heavily genetically determined. And again, they've done it with adopted children as well, where when they're adopted into another family, they're much more likely to look like their biological parents than their adopted family. So hmm. that said, though, one of the things that definitely can begin to shift our set point is dieting, because what we see is the more we diet, the more our bodies get like afraid that hmm. we're starving and the more our bodies become adapted to holding on to weight because again, your body's afraid that you're going to start starving it again. So it's going to need that extra stored fuel. Absolutely. And again, weight's complicated. So I don't want to oversimplify it and say that Mm -hmm. this always happens, but it's one of the things that we do see happening. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen to everyone because our genetics are different. Some people can like diet their whole lives and they're sort of, they sort of stay the same. But a lot of the women that I end up working with are women who started dieting at some point in their early years, teens, early twenties, because they believed there was something wrong with their body when there wasn't. And as a result, over the years have gone through these cycles of losing and gaining and then gaining back more. And it becomes more and more difficult because again, we have this set point range and it's a little bit hard to know again, what someone's set point is or how flexible the set point range is. Like some people easily move up and down 10 pounds or 15 pounds or whatever, you know, it's like they exercise a bit more, they lose 10 pounds, they get lazy for a few months or they get busy. I shouldn't say lazy, busy. Mm -hmm. is what most people get. And they don't have as much time to exercise and they put a bit on and they just sort of like happily move around that range. To push someone out of that range, we typically have to do some pretty extreme things like really be restricting and overdoing the exercise or really be reactively eating, binge eating, ignoring our hunger for long periods of time. But what's interesting is that our bodies have a much tighter control or tighter grip on the low end of our set point 
than on the upper end of our set point. From a survival perspective, that mm. makes sense. Our body's going to be much more concerned in the immediate moment with us losing too much weight and dying than it is gaining weight, which can have effects on our health and overall how we feel, but over decades, <laughs> right? So the biggest concern for our body is not do you look good in a bikini and are you measuring up to like Jennifer Garner? Our body's concern is are you going to die? Mm -hmm. And so all of our physiological processes have been geared around protecting ourselves. And a lot of the negative, again, I'm using a lot of air quotes today, but like the negative food behaviors that we see in women are actually not negative food behaviors. They're our body's way of forcing us to do things to ensure that we're eating enough food and that we're not starving. Mm -hmm. And the main difference is that in the past 100, 120 years, we have found ourselves in a place of food security, not the whole world, but many of us in North America are in a place where there is more access to food, reliable access to food, you know, as opposed to back in, you know, everyone loves to talk about like the caveman days, you know, back in the caveman days, nobody snacked. I mean, people didn't have food to snack on, right? But what they did become was the hungrier they became, the more food preoccupied they became. And that ensured that they continued their drive to find food to stay alive. That is not so functional in 2019 when there's food everywhere. So trying to force yourself to restrict and starve and not eat when you're hungry makes you food preoccupied and there's food everywhere. And then we think it's a willpower problem, but really it's just our biology winning out, right? It's like trying to hold your breath for too long when there's oxygen available, eventually you start gasping for air. It's like trying to hold your pee for too long. Like eventually you pee your pants, you're gonna go, right? And it's the same with hunger. Hunger is a biological drive and, and it's a drive to keep us alive. So it is strong. So we can only restrict for so long before A, we fall into some sort of pathological pattern <laughs> like anorexia, where it's abnormal to be able to, to restrict ourselves for such a long time, or we start reacting. We start losing control when in reality it's just our physical body winning out over our mental beliefs about how we should be behaving should even be that mentality is so like freeing it just takes so much like people have so much guilt surrounding oh i can't like, restrict a yeah and it's like if we just understand that like binge eating is a reaction not always there i, I never want to say always because there are sometimes when binge eating is part of a mood disorder but for many of the women that i work with the binge eating and overeating that they do is a direct reaction to restricting themselves mm -hmm. and feeling caught in that cycle and then their body just wins out eventually and they eat everything and it's like oh i failed again and it's like no no <laughs> Your brain may have your like your brain kind of lost it, but your body won. Yeah, <laughs> your you know it's like your biology just won. And so the work that I do, the ultimate goal, I feel like I this has been like yeah. A really so long, let's I know we we just went on a big old tangent. Yeah. But, um, so but, so we were talking about kind of the steps that you take with your clients that you work with, and the first one was just sort of like put health aside, but you kind of just focus on like what is it to eat without being on a diet. And yeah, without so put, trying so to lose put weight. health and wellness and weight aside. Yeah. We pull apart the belief systems about like food and exercise and our bodies and what we should be able to do. And, and like, here's the reality of what we can manage and can't manage. 
we start to look at food behaviors and we start to pull apart why the food behaviors exist. So there's a lot of like the psychology of eating and like going deeper into what I was just talking about. Like, why are you doing the things you're doing? And is there a way for us to understand and explain the behaviors and the patterns that you maybe are calling self-sabotage or a lack of willpower? Is there a way for us to understand and explain why you as a rational, intelligent, competent, relatively successful human keep engaging in these patterns, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole big section where I just work with objections, like a whole big section of the work where it's just like people going away and working on their food and their movement and then just coming back and being like, yeah, 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 but, but, but my doctor said, or yeah, 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 but, but, but my best friend said, or my sister is a a holistic nutritionist. So we do this whole rigmarole where we go through the objections, you know, that people have, because again, they've grown up in a diet culture and there's all these beliefs. Once I feel like we've really stripped everything away, because there's a lot in that. Once I feel like there's been a real shift in the motivation, because that's really what it is. It's about shifting motivation from weight loss being that ultimate motivator and the ultimate metric of success to actually feeling good in your body and in your life and, and, and feeling good about the decisions that you have and being willing to give up on certain weight loss goals in order to live happily in that place. Like when we get there, then we start to move into rebuilding health behaviors. And then within all of that, there's also a very big education on the social structures and systems that are in place that stigmatize and oppress people who are in different size bodies. We talk a lot about the social activist piece of this. We talk about like the misogyny, the sizeism. We talk about, you know, there's a, there's a big sort of like feminist component to it, but I do, I do the same education with men as well because there's just like a very stigmatizing, oppressive storyline about fat bodies in our culture. There's a really big power in understanding that the work that you're doing is not just for you as an individual, but it's as part of a cultural change and a shift in the way that we treat human beings and we, the way that we see human bodies. There's a lot of power in that. Like there's a lot of power in being tied to something that's bigger than yourself. Like something that will, you know, breaking the lineage of 10 generations of women who dieted themselves to death till the day they were gone. There's a lot of power. There's a lot of motivation in that that can be real fuel for the days that it feels really difficult to make the choice for yourself as an individual to keep Mm -hmm. going, right? For the population I work with, it's different for different people who are working with different people who have different values and goals. But for me, ultimately, is I want people to be able to go out into the world and enjoy movement and enjoy food and feel like they are doing things that support their physical health without sacrificing their mental and emotional and social well-being. That's the goal for me. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love it. Can you explain the importance of enjoying what you're eating? I mean, it's an interesting thing. Like food, like sex, has been designed to be pleasurable because it helps us propagate the species. Like food is inherently pleasurable because we need to do it to stay alive. And so it's been made pleasurable for that reason. And what's interesting is that there are also appetite and nutrient like digestion and assimilation processes in our body that are highly linked to how much we're enjoying food. And it's not inconceivable when we understand that enjoying food is a really important part of, of staying. Like, like you have to want to eat, right? Alive. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and if we understand that, then we understand that, you know, 
pleasure is very much related to like appetite centers in our brain. And so if we are consistently eating foods that are like healthy or low cal or whatever, but we're not actually like satiating this part of our brain that wants also to experience certain aspects of eating and enjoyment and pleasure, we end up with people who are, you know, I call it surfing for food. Like they filled up on enough calories maybe, but they never stop being hungry and they can't understand. But it's like, you haven't eaten anything that has brought you any pleasure today, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you're not getting some pleasure out of food, it is going to be very difficult to satisfy the different levels of appetite and hunger that exists within you for a reason. Mm-hmm. I totally experienced that. It almost makes you like, even more, maybe you're physically not hungry, but even more preoccupied with food when you're just like not enjoying anything that you're eating. It's like in your head even more. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And then there are nutrients are absorbed much better from food when we really enjoy it. And we start to see that also like the social, emotional, pleasurable effects of eating and how that plays out on our health in cultures where they have a much more positive attitude toward food Mm. and they eat for pleasure. Paul Rosen headed up a lot of studies in this area. One of the big studies that he did, I believe out of the University of Pennsylvania, was looking at the French versus the Americans, right? And it's like where the French, when they see a picture of birthday cake, they're like celebration, party. And then, you know, when Americans see it, it's like fat sugar, you know? And so one of the things that he looked at in this study was the amount of pleasure that the individuals in that culture got from food, that the amount of health and food anxiety that they had and the health effect that they had. And so the French had really high, you know, pleasure ratings when it came to food, really low, low food anxiety, low health anxiety, and manage their weight. And when I say manage their weight, I don't mean that people, everybody has to be a size two. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I mean that they were able to be at the weight that is genetically appropriate for them, which is a really wide range in any culture they were able to maintain that without having to stress or fret or force or manipulate or restrict. They were on fewer medications. Overall, their heart health was very good. Um, They were living long, you know, all of these things were in place and they were just doing really well overall. Conversely, Americans, really high food and health anxieties, poor attitude toward food, meaning that they just had a bad negative relationship with food on more medication, weights are much higher beyond what's genetically appropriate, more eating disorders, more body image issues. Like it was all over the place. It was Mm -hmm. not good. I study with Ellen Satter, who's sort of like the formative voice in competent eating for children. So in the work that I do with kids over the past 50 years, she's the one who like developed, researched, and has clinically and research validated a model for teaching children how to eat competently. And this is exactly what she's found in her work as well, is that those who are competent eaters, who nourish themselves, who have a positive attitude toward food, who have the skills to feed themselves regularly and reliably, who enjoy eating, just have better health health outcomes all across the board. But their weights are, again, a much wider range than what we're taught is healthy. So for example... On the current BMI skill that we have. Which, why are we possibly still using that? I mean, I know, I know, but we have to just address it because doctors use yeah. it and like, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So on the BMI scale that we currently use, healthy is considered under 24.9. So like 19 to like 24. And even then, 
what we see in, in the media is much smaller than that portrayed mm. as healthy. So probably closer to like 17 to 19 is more mm. what we're seeing in the media. In Ellen Satter's work, what she's seen is those who are competent eaters range from probably around 21 to 31 on the BMI mm. scale. And so well into what we have defined as obese and decided that that's wrong and it's bad and the health outcomes are bad. And she's like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. If individuals are in accordance with their internal regulatory system, if they are behaving in healthy ways that are appropriate for their body, if they are not smoking and not drinking excessively and not doing these other, you know, they, there's all of the reason to believe that they will live long, healthy lives, potentially even longer than those who are in that 19 Mm. range category. And there's lots of research to support that. So for me, again, another big part of the work is helping people untangle weight and health so that they can actually pursue health with the right motivation and not get caught in the intentionally pursuing weight trap that can actually disconnect them and cut them off from behaviors that would actually support their health in the long run. How do you work with clients on um, helping to repair their body image? Because that is so tied to all of this as well. A lot of that like social activism and feminist work that I talked about is a really big piece of that. Like understanding all of the forces that have defined the current body ideal for women, really understanding that, like pulling it apart right to the bones of like, when did this start? How did it evolve? Um, why do you feel the way you do? What is it that you believe you will have more access to via your body? Because that's essentially the low lying message is like, when you have the right body, life will be easier. Everything will be easier. Like there's all these interesting beliefs, like you'll regulate your moods better. You'll be nicer to people. You'll have better relationships. You'll be more successful. You'll make more money. You will just be happier in general. You'll be more joyful. You'll laugh more, you know, and some of those things are real because our culture does actually inappropriately reward thin bodies. There's lots of evidence that thin bodies are treated better in the workplace and then in the medical system. Um, So some of those things are real. So we do work to address that as well, because that's really important. Like, hey, here's the reality. But then also understanding the bits and pieces of it that are made up is a really big, important role. The biggest thing is that most people believe that the way they feel about their body is a fixed belief. And so the biggest thing is about helping them understand that it's learned. And then once we have the awareness that it has been learned, we understand that we can unlearn it or we can learn something new. Yeah, that makes sense. This is also very closely tied to body positivity, yes. which is a different thing though. Different. Yeah. Can you explain the difference? Image, yeah. So body image and body positivity are very differently, but they mm-hmm. are really highly linked, which is again, like that social activisty bit that I do with people is the body positive. It's about teaching them about body positivity. Body positivity, I kind of alluded to mm-hmm. it earlier when I was talking about human beings deserving to be respected and valued simply because they exist. Yeah. Like, like exiting the meritocracy where you have to earn your worth as a human being, because that's impossible. And you start to understand that all human beings are worthy because they exist. That is essentially the foundation of the body positive movement. And it was really created to advocate for those who are most oppressed and most stigmatized and most marginalized. So it was originally founded in sort of like the seventies ish to really draw attention to sort of the queer and the fat community who were being really heavily stigmatized Mm -hmm. at that time and continue to be. Body positivity is really about 
riling against or fighting against the systems and structures that are at work that disrespect human beings in bodies that they have defined as inappropriate or not good enough. I mean, that's what that work is about. Body image work is about the way that we see ourselves and how we've internalized the messaging, a lot of which comes from the way that fat bodies are treated and Mm -hmm. queer bodies and trans bodies and disabled bodies and differently colored bodies and different ethnic bodies. You know, a lot of what we internalize and how we feel about ourselves is a byproduct of how we treat other human beings in the culture. And then body image is, you know, really about shifting the way that we see ourselves in the world. But the really big difference is for those who are not in marginalized bodies, when we do that internal work, when we shift the way that we feel in the world, all of a sudden we realize we have a lot of privilege and we're treated really, really, really well. It's reflected back, <laughs> reflected right? Back to us. Yeah. Right. Those in marginalized bodies can and have to do the same work, but the world is not going to reflect it back to them. Hmm. So they can do the work to be like, you know what, I'm going to stop oppressing myself with these internal thoughts and behaviors. There's no good coming from me continuing to treat myself this way because I'm a size 16 or a size 22 or I'm disabled or I'm trans or I'm whatever. Like I'm going to do that work to accept myself, but that doesn't mean it's going to be reflected back to them. Mm -hmm. They are still going to have to go out into the world and deal every single day with the judgments and the misinformation and the fear of others. It's different work because body image work is about healing up the individual. And for me, body positive work is about healing up the system and the culture mm-hmm. and the, the structures that are in place. And I feel like we need to do both, right? Yeah. We need to be doing both. Yeah. So much work to be done as far yeah. as the, the structures mm-hmm. that are in place and the oppression mm-hmm. against larger bodies, mm-hmm. for sure. It's a great message to be aware of. Yeah. So I have one final question for you. Sure. It's something that I ask everybody that comes on the podcast, but what makes you excited to get out of bed in the morning? Well, I think like on a macro scale, it's like my children and I mean, I've always like, I like life, you know, like I think it's exciting. I think it's fun, <laughs> you know, in general, I have a, a pretty good, but I think that in terms of this work, it's just really exciting to see women freeing them like like that box I was talking about at the beginning it's like watching a woman step out of that box is one of the most amazing things because it's like Mm. all of a sudden she finally gets to live life on her own terms making choices for herself that feel good and I love it's very exciting to me to get to be a part of that process and like I said to shorten it (laughs) to shorten the point a to point b yeah it's not easy to do by yourself that's no, for sure no, it, definitely, it definitely isn't and I think that's really yeah. important to note because there's lots of books I have a podcast you have a podcast it's great it's such great information I think that it plants the seed I think that it helps begin to shift the stories and at least starts system. to open your eyes right you start Absolutely. to think okay there's something else Absolutely. out there yeah but for many people it requires some help to shift the relationship. Like I Mm -hmm. I always try to remind people, this is like a relationship that you have with your body and with food. And it's an ongoing relationship. It's not like, oh, you're just going to listen to something or read some book. And there's going to be like a snap of your fingers and everything's going to be different. Sure. That can happen. It happens to one or two unicorns. Most other people need some help navigating that relationship, right. Mm -hmm. And learning how to cultivate a different relationship in a different ongoing way. They need mm-hmm. new skills, new tools, new thoughts. And that's, like you said, it's very difficult to do on your own. Yeah, for sure. I needed help. I definitely needed help. And I always advise other people to invest a bit of time 
and a bit of money and a bit of effort because it will save you decades of this yeah. work. Yeah. Um, if people want to learn more, you just mentioned your podcast. What are other ways to kind of get in touch with you, get more information about um, what you do? So they can find me at www.foodfreedombodylove.com and they can also find my, like my Instagram is food freedom, body love. My podcast is the food freedom, body love podcast. You can just Google those things. Um, and you can also Google Jillian Murphy naturopath and most of my work will pop up as well. Amazing. Thank you. Anything else to add? No, I don't No, I don't think so. Thank you so much for having me. I love getting to talk about this and spreading the word. So thanks. Yeah, this has been great. Of course. Thanks for listening guys. I'm going to give everybody a little challenge this week. If you made it to the end of this episode, I challenge you to share it with two friends that you think need to hear this message. Like I said in the intro, I feel so strongly about the things that we discussed in this episode, and I would really love to spread the word about it. I would also love to hear from you. Send me your biggest takeaway from today. You can find me on Instagram at KCMZav. I would really love to hear from you. As you know, we release a new episode every Monday morning. Thanks again, guys. Get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.